0: Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation, news, and commentary. I'm entertainment writer Jim Hill, and Mr. Taylor, whose writings on the industry you can regularly read over at The Wrap, and whose musings on the Mission Impossible movies you can listen to on Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast. He and I are recording this week's show on Sunday, November 5th, and Drew's kind of on the move. In fact, what, as soon as we finish here, you're headed? To the Arrow to host a panel for Trolls band together. Is that right?
1: That's right. Uh, yeah, I will be there with Walt Doran, the director, Tim Heights, the co-director, Gina Shea, the producer, Elizabeth Tippett, one of the writers, Mark J. Scott, the visual effects supervisor and Colin Jack, the head of story. So, you know, a nice small panel, Jim.
0: When you're dealing with a panel that big, you really, you're not so much uh, interviewing as you are a traffic cop. It's just making yes. sure every everybody gets their moment in the sun and that sort of thing. But... But they have they been there the full day because you were mentioning this is part of a Trolls movie marathon, right?
1: I don't think they've been there the whole day, but yeah, it started at twelve thirty with Trolls, then Trolls World Tour started at about two fifteen. Uh, so Trolls band together starts at about three fifty five, and then I'm going to come in right at the end, Jim, and you know do a little do a little work.
0: Wow. Okay. So, so again, we can't hold up. Mr. Taylor, we got to move here. All right. And before we get to the news, though, um, it just makes me crazy. I, you know, the the notion that it's just – I mean, we just had the World Series end on, on the first, which, by the way, do you know who played?
1: I, I saw that the Texas Rangers won. I mean, I, I am from Texas. I should have some more pr- Texas pride with the baseball team, but I – I don't really know, know that. But I, I knew that they they won, and it was the first time they had ever taken home the, uh, the prize, right?
0: There we go. There we go. But it was the lowest-rated World Series in history. And by the way, they played against the Arizona Diamondbacks. But anyway, I bring that up because – this is only the eighth time in the past, what, 22 years, 23 years, that the World Series has dragged into November, which again is the beginning of award season. And I might argue that the panel you're going to this evening has kind of an award season component, don't you think?
1: I, I think so, Jim. I think that's—I hope so. Okay. Otherwise, I don't get paid, you know. That's really the the, the big thing. <laughs> um, no, it, it, we, there's been a lot of stuff this— you know, I was at the World Animation Conference on Friday. I hosted a panel for Leo there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's definitely—you feel the uh, the the race is heating up, you know, so it's very interesting.
0: Yeah. Now, toward that end, you mentioned that the dubbed trailer for Hayao Miyazaki's uh, The Boy and the Heron dropped earlier this week. And and that's still on track to open in North American theaters on December 8th of this year. Is that still where the smart money is?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think that's the front runner. Although, you know, Mm -hmm. you never know. We we haven't seen Wish yet. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm very confident in probably four of the slots. But I think that the fifth one is a real wild card, so I'm interested. I think trolls could come in there. I think migration could come in there. I think even Leo could get sneak in. So yeah, I'm I'm interested.
0: This time last year, Netflix did a full court press for Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, and and it won. I mean, it took home the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. Where with Leo, which, again, both you and I have determined we like. You know, we're, we're fans of. And it just seems to me that that Netflix is, in this case, just happy with the fact that it's coming out when it's coming out, just before Thanksgiving, and that families will sit down after their holiday meal, and, and millions of them will watch this thing.
1: Yeah, and they're going to watch it over and over again. It's going to be really interesting to see the Wish-Leo mm-hmm. divide. Mm -hmm. To see how many minutes Leo is watched versus what the box office for Wish is going to be. It's going to be very interesting.
0: Speaking of which, earlier this week, we saw the initial box office projections for Wish, which again opens on uh, November 22nd of this month. Right now, it's projected to make $50 million. And again, we've talked ad nauseum uh, on the show about what happened with Elemental. Uh, when it opened back in June of this year, it you know, uh, 29.5, second lowest Pixar. But that story had a happy ending. In fact, just to sort of pivot back to award season here, what do you think... Disney's going to do there. They have to pick which one, you know, whether it's Wish or it's Elemental, that they're going to position for best animated feature.
1: I don't. I don't think they have to pick one necessarily. Mm-hmm. And okay. I. I also did a Elemental Q and A earlier this week with uh, really? with okay. Peter Stone and Thomas Newman, which was actually really fascinating. Because um, I was like, oh, I just watched. Lost Boys over the Halloween weekend. And it's like, he has done so many great scores, obviously. Oh,
0: God, yeah. No, that, that, love his work.
1: But, um, yeah, they, they seem to be pushing them both pretty heavily. So also, Jim, Carl's Date and Once Upon a Studio are both in the running for Animated Short. So there's oh, another geez. kind of push and pull there as well.
0: When I look at Wish versus Elemental, I God, you know, talk about a Sophie's Choice. I mean, you, know, you have your project... That's tied to the hundredth anniversary of the studio. On the other hand, Elemental has that wonderful come from behind thing, or at least at the box office, coupled with it's it's a really personal story, and also there's just a part of me that really wants to see Peter some there at the day you know holding onto a trophy. So I don't know what horse to bet on here. And, and even at the same time, I wouldn't mind if uh, Under the Boardwalk got a little love. Because, and that <laughs> that opened this weekend, right?
1: It did open this weekend. I, I was actually looking at Leo from who who directed Inner Workings. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually did some design work on. Did he really? Uh, under, yes, yes. Okay.
0: Well, I don't know if you, you saw when Once Upon a Studio came out. In fact, it was one of the only characters like, well, who's this guy in the back? And it's like, I, I'm blanking the name of the character from Inner Workings, but it was the office worker from Inner Workings. You could, And you knew it was him because of his square-shaped head. So, Paul, um, his name
1: is Paul. Paul, there we go. Yes. Paul
0: was in the crowd. So,
1: Oh, I didn't know that. That's great.
0: <laughs> yeah, but just to review here again, you're, you're headed out the door shortly for a Trolls Band Together panel which by the way that drops in theaters november 17th disney's wish that's november 22nd migration which you also mentioned december 22nd of this year and in the middle there we have leo dropping on netflix on november 21st did i get it right
1: that's it we got a lot of animation coming up jim you better watch all this stuff
0: I, that's my plan. That's my plan. But, yeah, but and, and also lots of animation news coming up today, folks. But before we get to that, I want to remind you that the news portion of today's show is brought to you by Touring Plan's own travel agency. And if you're thinking of heading back to Walt Disney World in the not so distant future, these obviously knowledgeable folks can help you plan your dream vacation. They'll, they'll even toss in a free subscription to Touring Plan. So please check them out at TouringPlans.com com backslash travel okay so obviously no, I'm, just, I'm just
1: scanning this picture Jim for mm-hmm. for Paul the uh, the group shot from
0: <laughs> I want to say you're looking the right extreme right hand corner and okay. you're, you what you're looking oh, for I see him I see him there we next go to, all right next <laughs> to uh,
1: uh, what's his name <laughs> Sven's or whatever the uh, the frozen character who who owns the uh, shop what is that guy's oh,
0: name? Uh, Wandering Oaken.
1: Wandering Oaken, yes. He's right next to Wandering Oaken and right behind the Martin Short robot from Treasure Planet.
0: Okay, so good. See, he, he wow. made the cut. <laughs> yes. Okay, now speaking of Disney Animation Studio-related news, big, big news this week. Wednesday, November 1st, uh, the Animation Guild Local 839 revealed that Walt Disney Animation Studio's production workers voted to unionize and this has gone on a couple of times this fall. September 18th, we saw the Marvel visual effects workers. Uh, they voted to unionize. By the way, they, they voted to join the exact same group that Disney's animation production workers did—the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, aka the IATSE,
1: or IATSE as we call it out here. IATSE. Yeah. IATSE. IATSE. All right, IATSE. and there we go. See, IATSE. Break your legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Careful. Careful. All right. (laughs) Uh, And then October 3rd of this year, Disney's visual effects uh, workers, they also voted to join IATSE. By the way, those last two elections were unanimous. Disney Animation Studio production workers, almost unanimous. Out of the 96 folks voting, 93 voted to join IATSE. I'm hearing that Disney management isn't necessarily happy, but to be honest, given that they've been dealing with the writer's strike, which again, resolved September 27th of this year, and the actor's strike, which uh, this time last week, it looked really promising. They were talking about, you know, there was an agreement offing, and here we are a week later, and it's not happening.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've heard uh, various things about the SAG strike, but, you know, I think what's interesting about this animation unionization is that it isn't animators. It's like Mm -hmm. post-production and production supervisors. It's a pretty narrow margin of people. So, yeah, I mean, Disney historically has not been... Super kind to uh, unionization. <laughs> um, if we'll recall, Jim, I don't know if you remember that uh, little blip, but
0: yeah. Yeah, 1941. We, we yeah. barely talk about that anymore, Drew. You know, what? <laughs> two books in the last year, right? <laughs> you know, so, oh, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting. I wonder what, if more sections of the production will start to unionize as well
0: it's just an intriguing time. And speaking of which, Friday of last week, Disney announced that it's going to buy out Comcast's stake in Hulu. That's 33% of the streaming service for $8.6 billion. Deal closes on December 1st, and uh, the trades were warning that could go higher, kind of like what happened with the Fox deal. And now... Speaking of Hulu, we learned on Thursday of this past week that that streaming service has ordered up two more seasons of Futurama. And uh, before we get started here, this is not one of those fake-out renewals that Drew has previously talked about when this animated series, was uh, the revival was announced in uh, 2022. Hulu ordered 20 episodes, and and 10 were for season 11, which, by the way, officially ended back on September 25th of this year with All the Way Down, and another 10 uh, for season 12 uh, were set aside to begin airing on Hulu in 2024. So this pile, this additional 20 episodes of Futurama that were ordered Uh, on Thursday, uh, November 2nd. Therefore, seasons 13 and seasons 14, which are supposed to begin airing on that streaming service in 2025 and 2026. And did you see the stuff that was kind of bubbling up on social media uh, about Futurama?
1: No, what was it?
0: Since Disney will soon own Hulu and Futurama is now airing on Hulu, Uh, More to the point, because 20th Century Animation is now a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company, there were a number of people who were saying, look, it's time that Futurama has some sort of a presence in the Disney theme parks. And I don't necessarily disagree. They just showed that trio of droids doing their playtest inside of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Uh, Oh, they
1: were so cute.
0: (laughs) They were, they were, though uh, what's kind of interesting, and I did not know this, but that particular style of droid was already on sale inside of the droid depot. So, I mean, it's one of these things where, yeah, that one that's in the store, can we make one of those that walks around the park and looks real cute? Because, you know, we, we might want to move a couple of hundred thousand of those. <laughs> you know, there's a part of me that would just love to see Bender out walking in the park. But you and I have privately talked about the proposed Futurama ride. Have we ever discussed this in the show? Or
1: No, I don't think you have told me about the Futurama Right.
0: Oh, okay. So this is kind of a heartbreaker because this is one of these things where all we have of this proposed attraction is like three or four pieces of concept art, but you've seen the art for the Great Muppet Movie Ride,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely.
0: And the, the whole point of the Great Muppet Movie Ride is that it was supposed to be a parody of the Great Movie Ride at Disney MGM. And so... That's really also what the conceit was for Futurama, the ride. It was supposed to be a parody of Star Tours. Basically, the setup is you walk up to a show building that from the outside, it's like, that's Planet Express. And as you make your way through the queue, you visit the offices of of Planet Express, and eventually you board the ship we know from the series. And it's the classic Star Tour setup, you know, like the six rows of like eight seats that face the screen. And the curtain comes up, and there is there's Leela, there's Fry, and there's Bender. And you're about to make a package run for Planet Express. And Fry turns around and does like this huge double take, like, what's with all the people back there? <laughs> and it's like, oh, Professor Farnworth, you know, they're, they're safety inspectors. They, you know, he's asked them to to observe us as, as we go around about a typical run. And he's like, wait a minute. I recognize what's going on here. This is like that Star Tours ride at Disneyland. And we're going to go someplace and something's going to go horribly wrong. And so now you take off and you fly to uh, the, the planet. In fact, the version that was explained to me was you go to the planet where Morbo the giant lizard king creature lives, and you're delivering a package, and Leela actually exits the, sh- the ship and carries the package to Morbo, and Morbo is stepping up menacingly to Leela, and Fry turns to people in the back of the vehicle and it's like, this is where things go horribly wrong. And it's like, no, Marbo takes the clipboard. He signs for the package, you know, and, you know, Lila <laughs> hands it to him and he walks away. And, and this happens like three times in the attraction. You have these moments where something goes horribly wrong. And, and it never does. It's a milk run, you know, just sort of. And so Fry basically turns around and starts apologizing to everybody who's in the back cabin, like, well, I guess nothing's going to happen on this. Like, Are you feeling good about the money you spent today? Come, it must be expensive to come into a theme park. And, and at this moment, there's a transporter effect and Zap, Brannigan and Kiff enter the ship. And, you know, they're like, uh, you know, Leela, I'm sorry, we need to commandeer your vessel. And they sort of push Leela out of the way. And for the next 30 seconds, you are on the roughest simulator ride on the planet. And in fact, Zap Brangan crash lands the vehicle back at Planet Express. And it's so bad. It's one of those kind of fake out. Things that, in fact, in Rise of the Resistance, they do this effect now, where you have what looks like a solid wall that suddenly a hole is cut in it and that sort of thing. In this case, during the crash, uh, there's a fake out, and the doors that you previously had seen from Star Tours are now gone. And there's a hole in the side of the hull, and that's how you exit. And, and what happens is as you go down that ramp that you always have to go down for a Star Tours attraction, because of course the ride vehicle is 10 or 15 feet off the ground, so it can do the motion-based simulator thing, you actually pass Fry in the wreckage of the building. And he's you know, he got like one arm and his head out and he's yelling at you. It's like, see, I told you something would go horribly wrong. It's all designed, it's all written. But the problem is now, I don't know if you, you saw the announcement earlier this year, Disney has committed to renewing and refreshing Star Tours, that next year we'll see a brand new set of ride films go into that attraction where we get we get to see The Mandalorian, we get to see Ahsoka, we get to see Boba Fett, we get to see Baby Grogu, in addition to the classic Star Tours characters. So what's kind of interesting is there's a bunch of Imagineers who have supposedly, now that it's like, look, we own Futurama. I mean, we pitched this thing during a time when we didn't own Futurama, but now we own Futurama. And it, if, it, in a weird sort of way, it's kind of confusing, especially in Florida, that Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, you enter through a tunnel, but outside of one side over by Grand Avenue, you still have Star Tours. And wouldn't it make more sense in the long run to just keep all of Star Wars inside of Galaxy's Edge through those two portals and to just turn the uh, Star Tours show building that, you know, sit, and in fact, it, it's actually deeper into the park than Muppets and just turn that into a Futurama ride? Because it, the notion is a Futurama, the ride sitting next to a Muppet Studios on Grand Avenue. That's two funny things side by side, you know, and they, if anything, they, they would form sort of a gravity center to the effect of you want to laugh, go over to that side of the park. Or if you, you want to buy overpriced lightsabers, go through the portal to to Galaxy's Edge.
1: I think that would be great. I think that would be great. But to, to key off your last episode with Lynn, you know, the reason that Star Wars gets refreshed is because the studio or Disney Plus pays for those extra scenes.
0: You know, so I know, and it's such an interesting time, you know, at the Disney Company when everything, especially on the heels of the Fox acquisition, is under extra pressure to be a profit center to make money. And so, you know, something like this, we still could be another five, ten years before we see. Futurama actually in the parks, which if you think about it, Drew, that gives them time to cancel the show and bring it back at least another two times. That's true. true. So speaking of science fiction-y stuff, when we get back from this break, we will talk about Big Hero 6, which celebrates its ninth anniversary of its release the day this podcast goes live. Now, Drew, have you managed to make it to the Disneyland Resort to see uh, San Francisco Square yet?
1: No, I have not. Um, Yeah, it looks cool. Some of the finishing looked a little rough. I hate
0: to say this, but that's kind of... Disney online fandom these days? I mean, again, what, what fascinated me is you had this amazing recreation of the San Francisco, the Golden Gate Bridge, as seen in Big Hero 6. But if you, you turned your camera away from the sculpture and looked at the base, there were a couple of places where they missed screws and that sort of thing. And and that's what the online community went after. And it's like, really? I mean, you had to kind of work hard to find the stuff that wasn't completed. <laughs> on the other hand, this reimagining of the Pacific Wharf area at DCA opened on August 31st and seems to be a hit. So let's now talk about the film that inspired this, Big Hero 6, which has kind of a, an interesting history. It sort of came out of The announcement in August of 2009 that Disney was buying Marvel Entertainment and, as a direct result, had 5,000 new characters to build things around, which, again, wasn't entirely true. You know, Sony had Spider-Man and 20th Century Fox had X-Men, at least at that time. And so word went out to go through the catalog and see if there was anything there that sparked people's attention. And it was Don Hall. I, I want to say he had was just finishing co-directing Winnie the Pooh, and he was the one who went through and found the run of Big Hero Six comic books?
1: Yes. That's what I understand. That Don was the one that kind of sparked to Big Hero Six and then brought Chris Williams on to direct with him, who they had directed on, uh, they were both on Winnie the Pooh as well, right?
0: Yep. Yep. It's kind of a classic bake-off situation. They used to call these gong shows, I guess. The idea was that Disney was always looking for new projects to put in development, and they love it when folks in-house come up with these ideas. And so I want to say this is, again, Winnie the Pooh has gone out the door, did not do well that summer, and so... Don was anxious to line up his next project because of that, and he pitched a a big Hero 6, and it was one of five titles that kind of made it to the finals, and it was John Lasseter who just sort of sparked this. It, It was the whole notion of, okay, so we make a movie. At Walt Disney Animation Studios, it's based on a Marvel title. Bob Iger's got to love that. I mean, you know, given the billions the company spent to uh, $4 billion, right? Yes. Yeah, $4 billion to acquire Marvel Entertainment. So it's okay. We're going to help make that money back. It's in development for eight or nine months before the company finally officially admits that it's in the pipeline in June of 2012. And it kind of makes me crazy because I, when I think of, of Big Hero Six, I think of Paul Briggs. He's now at Netflix these days, right? He he left Disney.
1: He did leave Disney. I don't know where he. Uh, yeah, sure. Netflix seems like the safe enough bet as to okay. where he is right now. Sure. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, and and I, I he. I mean, he was the co-director in Ray and the Last Dragon. He was a story supervisor or on Frozen, and that's ultimately how he got his Big Hero 6 gig. And what I love about, you know, Paul is he just jumped into this with both feet. In fact, we just had uh, New York Comic Con at the Javis Center a, a week or so ago. And I-, I still remember in 2014, they brought Big Hero 6 to New York Comic Con out ahead of its November uh, 7th release, and... They did this wonderful bit where Paul actually came to the the panel dressed as a zombie. In fact, he had an axe sticking out of his head and he sat in the front row and they did this this wonderful bit where suddenly Baymax was on on screen and he was surveying the audience and it's like, oh, I I, I detect somebody who's in need of my medical help. And, you know, it it was Paul going back and forth with Baymax, the effect of, no, it's it's not a real axe in my head, but do you need medical assistance? And um, (laughs) it was a pretty good bet. It was a pretty good bet. But, you know, yes, it's a Marvel story. In fact, Joe Casita, uh, the longtime chief creative officer at Marvel and, and Jeff Loeb, who worked on on the television animation side of Marvel, they consulted, but this was really a Disney animation animal. that They really sort of treated the comic books as like, that's the inspiration, but that's not the story we're following.
1: Well, there was also some guardrails because a number of the characters either began life in the X-Men or went to the X-Men. And at the time, Disney did not own 20th Century, so...
0: Yep. A lot of those you know.
1: characters could not be incorporated into the movie. Um, yeah, so there was also that. There were some practical things that were keeping it away from the comic book as well. That
0: explains if you if you watch the credits for Once Upon a Studio, because it, you know, there are still folks in in house who love the Big Hero Six characters. That's why Baymax gets that wonderful uh, elevator gag. That's why you know uh, we get to see Yo Yo and Honey Lemon just before, you know, when we, you wish upon a star starts. I mean, there's a reason that they get positioned as strongly as they are. But yeah, they, I think it's a wonderful departure for Walt Disney Animation Studios. And what was interesting, when it took home the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature in February of 2015, for about five minutes there, there was talk of a, a film sequel, but March of 2016, we, we, we got the Big Hero 6 animated series for the Disney Channel. I mean, mind you, it, it didn't debut on the channel until 2017. But it was interesting to see who wound up with the project. And that was the team that did Kim Possible for Walt Disney television animation, Mark McCorkle and Bob Scully. It seemed to get a nice reaction, ran for three seasons. 56 episodes, finally wrapped up in February of 2021. And then after that, we got Bayback's Exclamation Point, which was sort of six little interacting shorts that ultimately told a whole story, right? Yeah,
1: I thought that was really great. And I know that they, they were contemplating a big screen sequel, mm-hmm. like even while the... 2D show was airing on Disney Channel. I mean, I remember mm. saying to someone, oh, so I guess this means there's no sequel. And they said, uh, no, not necessarily. We're still kind of tinkering with it. So I think that there won't be a sequel anytime soon. But yeah, I thought that Baymax show was really cute, really well done.
0: They did a great job. By the way, Baymax lived in the park as a meet and greet character along with Hiro. And in addition to the San Francisco Guyo, Square that we just got at DCA in August of this year. Uh, We also got the Happy Ride with Baymax at Tokyo Disneyland in September of 2020 that uses the same ride system as Mater's Junkyard Jamboree and Alien Swirling Saucers. And to sort of circle back to what we were just talking about, about Futurama the Ride, the flying sequences in Big Hero 6 were such a part of the success of that film that Beautifully staged, wonderfully scored, and, and they had some tremendous emotional beats. And folks in, in Imagineering, you know, it's like, we should do something with that. And I, there was evidently a flirtation with looking at the soaring technology and trying to create a soaring over San Francisco type experience. Evidently, the project got tabled because the determination was made that, like, no, in the movie, that's an individual experience. I mean, that's literally Hero riding on the back of Baymax, whereas Soaring is like 100, 200 people lifted up in that Tinker Toy-type setup and flying up into an IMAX screen. And the notion is it's it's a great experience. Soaring's a great experience, but... What happens in Big Hero 6 is it happens to you individually. So it's one of these things where it's like, okay, let's table that idea till we find a ride system that allows us to do that. So right now, a Big Hero 6 attraction is an idea that's in search of a ride system. And, you know, every so often, Disney makes a breakthrough in fact, going back to Two star tours. You know, there's the Lucasport project that was originally proposed for Disneyland, where you were going to have that roller coaster where you could vote whether or not you wanted to go to the light side or the dark side. And they just couldn't make the technology work. And so they tabled the idea of doing a Star Wars based attraction till Mark Eads flew over to London and. Saw the ready Fusion uh, simulator technology that was used to train pilots for flying jumbo jets, and it's like I found the system. I found, you know, I found the thing we can use. So, here's hoping that at some point somebody finds the ride system that allows us to ride on Baymax back over San Francisco. (laughs) So, okay. Drew has to get to his (laughs) panel. All right, so we're going to wrap up here. But before we do, I want to remind folks that Light the Fuse, the official Mission Impossible podcast that Drew does with Charles Hood, is just flat-out wonderful. What's going on over there this week?
1: Well, uh, I think this week we're finishing up our chat with Arthur Anderson, who was a producer on Mission Impossible 3. He also worked on all the John Woo movies that Woo made in America. And then the week after is our first, the first part of our interview with Dale Dye, which Jim, you say, you know, cinema history. This guy, as you know, is the military advisor on basically every war movie <laughs> since Platoon, and he also has a role oh, in Mission, the first Mission Impossible. So he is an absolute oh. hoot. It's one of the best interviews we've ever done. It's really really great
0: oh that's killer that's killer yeah. I you killer know, these days when you do a movie that involves the American military you have to get the equivalent of Pentagon approval right because if you want the actual bodies if you want to shoot on a military base an advisor like this is, is crucial
1: yeah and he has stories about everybody and every every movie oh. it's it's really fun.
0: Can't wait. Can't wait. Okay. By the way, we have a couple of podcasts here we wouldn't mind you listening to. Uh, We, of course, have Disney Dish, which I do with Len Testa. Uh, We also have uh, Marvelous Disney, which I do with Aaron Adams, and he has an outside project of his own, 32nd Street. Brian Gaughan and I uh, need to get going on a brand new looking at Lucasfilm. Hopefully get that in the works in the next day or so. Also, Len and my new project, Disney Unpacked, our first ever video series. The second episode just dropped today over on Patreon. This is about Crush's Coaster, and Jim Shule, veteran Imagineer, tells all sorts of great behind-the-scenes stories about how the very first spinning coaster at a Disney park was created. So uh, be sure and check that out. Social media. So we're still doing the Twitter and the X thing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still there. Uh, Drew Taylor, like a tailored shirt on, on all the mm-hmm. platforms, Blue Sky mm-hmm. and Threads and everything else. But what about you, Jim? Where can people find you?
0: I am also on Twitter and X. Uh, likewise, Instagram is Jim Hill Media. Over on Facebook, uh, you can find me under Jim Hill Media News. Okay, final favor to ask folks if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and recommend well, not just the show you're listening to right now, fine tuning, but also uh, Light Diffuse. That would be great. That's going to do it for this week because Drew's got to get out the door to the Arrow Theater, but uh, hopefully for next week's show, we'll have all sorts of great stories about what he learns when he interviews all of the creatives for Trolls uh, Tw- uh, Trolls Band Together. I almost That's said the right. name of the f- second right. film. All right. Well, anyway, so let's wrap up so so Drew t- 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 can get out the door. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon.